Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yes, we made it to another week and only one more Friday uh, between now and Election Day. So that's pretty amazing. We're almost to the finish line, which will actually be also the starting line for the 2024 presidential campaign. So uh, if you think you only uh, have enough fuel in the tank for a few more days, uh, that's great. But you're going to need it for two more years as well. Uh, But anyway, we have good, bad and crazy martinis for you today. Uh, But we're going to start by simply mentioning the fact that uh, like any other rational people, we're appalled to learn that the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, who we talked about earlier in the year due to his uh, driving under the influence situation, was apparently violently assaulted, according to the statement from the Speaker's office, in his own home in San Francisco. There's not many more details that we know. Other than that, he has been taken to the hospital and is expected to survive. The Pelosi's, of course, are uh, well into their 80s at this point, And so We hope for a speedy recovery. There should be no partisan divide on wishing someone well or being appalled by this sort of uh, crime, even though there's some lefties on Twitter immediately blaming the right wing for a break in and assault in in San Francisco, Jim. So I don't I don't know the details here and neither do any of those people. So we'll see what gets sorted out. But obviously, we we hope the best for Mr. Pelosi here. Yes. And this sort of may tie into our first martini topic. When something like this happens, the only appropriate response is, dear God, that's terrible. I hope Paul Pelosi makes a full recovery. And we will learn more about it. I did see a report that they had the assailant, or I should say the suspected assailant in custody. Uh, I hope that uh, if they got the right guy, convict him and and lock him up and throw away the key. There's absolutely no excuse for beating up a senior citizen. Um, As for motive, we will wait and see. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who'd like to make political hay of this one way or the other, either to use it as an illustration of the crime situation in the city of San Francisco or to paint uh, critics of of Nancy Pelosi as deranged maniacs. Obviously, you know, the crime situation in San Francisco is a separate issue. And, you know, you don't have to be a maniac to be uh, critical of Nancy Pelosi Right now, I just want to see Paul Pelosi get better and Nancy Pelosi to to feel comforted. And there'll be plenty of time to go back to our usual uh, arguments about politics and, and her in the near future. Yeah, no doubt about it. So uh, let's move on to our first martini now, Jim. And it's a good martini. We knew this was coming to some extent. There had been so many twists and turns in this over the past several months that we were never really sure if Elon Musk was going to take over at Twitter. Uh, At first, it seemed like he was uh, trying to get out by demanding more information on bots and all that kind of stuff. And finally, all the uh, T's got crossed, the I's got dotted, uh, the $44 billion got paid or whatever the final tab was. And He walked into Twitter HQ a couple days ago with a sink. Yesterday, he officially took over, apparently had his uh, Tesla uh, digital experts taking over the code at Twitter, then locking out all the uh, previous employees. And then he immediately uh, fired the CEO, the CFO, and the person who was apparently in charge of uh, suspending people for content that the lefties at Twitter uh, thought was inappropriate. Uh, The responses have been delicious from a schadenfreude perspective here uh, with people absolutely pulling their hair out when very little has actually changed other than folks like the Babylon Bee getting their account back and maybe some people getting their uh, correct number of follows. 
Um, but uh, Howard Dean saying he's leaving the platform before anything uh, significant's happening. Other people, I uh, forget his name, but one guy said, we are all Ukrainians now or something. We got we to stand firm like Ukraine. Stand like Ukrainian. Because it's, <laughs> it's just like being under fire from the Russian army. You know, being on Twitter now that Elon Musk owns it. So why why is the left so apoplectic right now that there might actually be a totally free exchange of ideas here on Twitter? Well, I was going to say, for those of us who have suspected or claimed that Twitter operates under uh, very heavy-handed and not even-handed rules for content moderation, um, the sheer number of folks on the right who feel that they have been what they call shadow banned, uh, a significant number of people can describe setting up a Twitter account uh, and gradually seeing a steady increase in the number of followers, and then it just stops. And then, then at some point, you just you go years, and you only gained a few thousand or or even less, a couple hundred here and there. Uh, I'm not. I, Twitter allegedly in the past was purging bots. These folks that are these accounts that are not really associated with actual human beings, but are <clears throat> run by some sort of computer program. I have no problem with that, but there are just too many folks on the right who describe this phenomenon of steady growth in followers and then hitting a ceiling. And that ceiling seems to last for years at a time. Now, maybe there's a hard ceiling for uh, conservative voices on Twitter, but it does seem odd and artificial. And the sheer number of times you follow someone and then you feel like you're not seeing all of their tweets in your feed. So uh, hopefully that's coming to an end. I actually don't expect my... Uh, interaction on Twitter or my experience on Twitter to change all that much. I think it's kind of fascinating the sheer number of people who expected to see things seem dramatically different the moment he took over. Um, the fact, you know, the the uh, I saw one very good illustration of it, which is that right now folks on the left need to say that's it, I'm leaving. This to you know, Elon Musk has ruined Twitter for me, or they need to basically stay on Twitter and complain about Elon Musk, and that's a hard choice to make. So we will see. I don't expect Elon Musk to basically give us the same kind of heavy handed and not even handed uh, uh, suspension of accounts and cancellation of accounts that uh, uh, we've been seeing and, you know, that we saw from the left. I hope he doesn't. I think that would be a mistake. I think he's he seems committed to what he's saying about free speech. But I guess we'll wait and see. But I'm kind of shocked by Well, I, I shouldn't be shocked. It is very revealing how much folks on the left feel like this is some sort of giant uh, nation-changing, course of human history-changing event when I believe as of May, like 22% of all Americans are on Twitter. <laughs> well, when you live in the bubble, especially the Twitter bubble, uh, things like this seem to be a much bigger deal than they actually are. I saw one person out there saying, uh, you know, whether you're absolutely thrilled or absolutely in despair, you might want to get out a little more. <laughs> so it's not going to probably change your life that much. Although if your account got freed, it might uh, change your life a little bit. I would say uh, two things here, Jim. Uh, first of all, Elon Musk is an extraordinarily wealthy man. I believe he's the wealthiest man in the world. Yet somehow he still lives rent-free in the uh, heads of uh, millions <laughs> How do you think he got so rich, Greg? <laughs> and secondly, let's not forget that a decade ago, he was pretty far left. So conservatives, if you think that Elon Musk is always going to be saying things that you agree with, think again. He's uh, His unpredictability is about the most predictable thing about him.
All right, on to the uh, bad martini now, Jim. And uh, off we go to Joe Biden yesterday. I don't remember if this was at his DNC remarks, uh, trying to whip up support for the midterms or at his uh, visit to New York. But nonetheless, he was talking gas prices again yesterday. And the the administration loves talking about, oh, we've brought gas prices down, a dollar, whatever, without ever telling you where gas prices started when he took office. Until yesterday when he just blatantly lied about it. Take a listen. The most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took off. So now, Jim, he's not only taking credit for gas prices coming down from north of $5, he's claiming it was north of $5 when he took office. Uh, I have to believe this is a just a deliberate gaslighting attempt as opposed to him just slipping up, which uh, is certainly not out of the realm of possibility either, uh, because the way they've been dancing around this topic forever, I think with uh, the polls going in the wrong direction and the midterms coming really quickly now, they're just throwing everything out there and seeing what'll stick. For quite a while now, I've been kind of asking, when Biden says something that seems completely disconnected from reality, is he trying to spin you? Is he getting bad information from his aides who are afraid to give him the bad news? Did they give him the bad news and he just doesn't for, and he uh, just forgets? Or is he just kind of making things up in his head and this is the version of reality he would prefer? And he's given us a lot of comments in this vein. The economy being strong as hell, uh, his off-the-cuff comments about Armageddon in uh, the idea of a Russian and U- the invasion of Ukraine leading to a full-fledged nuclear showdown. Um, or exchange, uh, I think perhaps, you know, one of the things that was kind of glaring was when he claimed that his student loan bailout had been passed by Congress. It had not. Um, calling Giselle Fetterman, saying she's going to be a great lady in the Senate. Like all of these things, like, is he, does he not know what's going on? Or is he, well, in the case of this one with gas prices, it's so bad and it's so wrong. And it's on a topic that's been, it's so far off from the mark. And it's so uh blatant that this one i think you can say ah i feel like we're on a game show right is it senility lying or bad briefing or something like that and i feel like hitting my answer and say lying that one is a lie that one i feel pretty good about i feel that one that uh while he met you now he may have meant that in mid-june it was at five dollars a gallon but it was not at that price when he took office and I don't think he would mix up mid-June and when he took office in January 20, like, you know, 2021. Like for all of his issues, he doesn't seem to have that real thing where he has no idea what day it is. So I think you look at this, okay, this is him lying to us. Everybody can rest easy. The president isn't senile. He's just habitually dishonest, That which isn't really that much better. No, but he gives you his word as a Biden. Yeah, so. that's the other thing. But I love how he says that and he always acts like, we should be impressed by that. Like, whoa, whoa. All right, I thought the president was handing me a line, but now that he's giving me his word as a Biden, I mean, I just said the other day to Hunter Biden, uh, you're you're you know, you're hooked on crack and you're naked and you've hit you, you've knocked up the stripper and, and all that kind of stuff. But he promised he would pay back that 25 bucks he owed me, and he, he said he gave me his word as a Biden. And wouldn't you know what Hunter Biden gave him, you know, he paid back the money. Nobody walks around saying that. Nobody really thinks that, oh, well, you know, his family name. And he also had that infamous thing where he was down in Florida and the, the, you know, local officials making small talk with him. And Biden says, ha, nobody Fs with a Biden. Really? Really, (laughs) Mr. President? Have you noticed everybody from uh, Republicans to uh, Vladimir Putin to uh, you know, even even Barack Obama, you know, don't underestimate Joe's ability to f this up. 
Everybody messes with Joe Biden. Everybody thinks they can take advantage of this guy. Ever, nobody's intimidated by him. He's almost 80. And yet Biden walks around with this sense like, ah, you know, boy, when I, you know, I, I tell somebody not to do it and they back down. Nobody wants to go around back behind the woodshed with me. Ah, you know. It's this like deeply insecure, blustering, tough guy persona that, you know, I wasn't a big fan of before, but now that he's president, we get regular doses of it several times a week. Now I find it really insufferable. But I suppose, uh, you know, the people, the, the American people will be communicating this in just a matter of weeks, Greg. I think so. I think so. Uh, I've seen anecdotal evidence, at least on Twitter. I don't know how uh, data driven it is that uh, what I was worried about the other day about COVID closures and so forth. The people are not responding well. Parents are not responding well to politicians saying, oh, it wasn't that bad or I was never really uh, in favor of that sort of thing. They're, they're paying attention. People mm-hmm. are paying attention. The American people are not going to be gaslit on something so fundamental as when their gas prices started skyrocketing. This is not going to happen. And uh, again, a few weeks after the election, I think they're even going to be quite a bit higher. All right. On to our crazy martini now, Jim and the Washington Post in their uh, opinion section, finally got something right. Only took them two and a half years. Uh, this is Eric Wemple, and I guess, you know, two and a half years is better than never. But uh, they are defending James Bennett, who was an editor of the New York Times editorial page, and he was pretty much shoved out the door out over the whole Tom Cotton op-ed, which I believe suggested, uh, you know, bringing National Guard, maybe even active duty troops, I think, into the streets of Washington and other cities to restore order during the ongoing riots in the summer of 2020. And so, um, you know, it says controversy over an op-ed by Senator Cotton consumed the New York Times in June 2020 and claimed the job of then editorial page editor James Bennett. Two and a half years later, Bennett has shared some thoughts about the episode and in particular the role of Times publisher A.G. Sulzberger. Quote, he set me on fire and threw me in the garbage and used my reverence for the institution against me. Bennett recently told Ben Smith of Semaphore, this is why I was so bewildered for so long after I had what felt like all my colleagues treating me like an incompetent fascist. And then Wemple says that might sound like the angst of a guy who's still disgruntled at losing his job. And it is for a compelling reason. Bennett is right. He's right about Selzberger. He's right about the cotton op-ed. And he's right about the lessons that linger from his tumultuous final days at the Times. And as we documented well at the time, it was basically um, editorial staffers in their 20s throwing a gigantic cumulative hissy fit until heads rolled over the fact that that op-ed saw the light of day. So... Jim, I, you know, it's always fun, I guess, for rival newspapers to kind of say, yeah, this guy's right about how horrible this other newspaper was. But, uh, you know, hindsight being a little clearer than uh, sight at the time, maybe uh, give a little bit of credit uh, uh, to Bennett, of course, and, and to uh, the Post here. But the question is whether the next time there's a major crisis, anything substantive will have been learned. And I'm a little bit dubious of that. Greg, I think you are correct to be dubious, but I, I want to give Eric Wemple some credit here. I, I've always felt like amongst the reporters on the media beat, he's been one of the better ones. I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with everything he writes. But he has shown a willingness to wrap uh, what you and I would consider to be too far to the left institutions on the knuckles uh, when needed. Uh, maybe not as often as we'd like, maybe not as loudly as, as we would like. But this one is stands out because nobody's really talking about the Tom Cotton op-ed anymore, other than James Bennett, who has good reason to, to contend that he was 
basically turned into a scapegoat. That basically there was really whether or not you agree with what Tom Cotton was saying, there was nothing abnormal. There was nothing scandalous. There was nothing morally or journalistically wrong with the New York Times writing an op-ed with this viewpoint. If you want to say, well, a lot of people didn't like it. Well, what's the point of the op-ed page then? Is it just only to write things that people like? Puppies are cute. Water is wet. You know, or are you supposed to have something? That might be thought provoking, might challenge your preconditions. That might, you know. Now, what it is is that the New York Times ultimately is saying we no longer are willing to tolerate a right of center viewpoint on our op-ed page. Although maybe Ross Duthat would would disagree, or maybe you know uh, Brett Stevens here and there. But uh, that by and large, here is Tom Cotton putting forth one. And the correct way to respond to that is to say, "No, Tom Cotton, you're wrong." Um, you should not, you know, it is not correct to call out the military troops in response to riots. Here's why. But they couldn't do that. And I think this kind of indicates that um, the li- you know, liberals are no longer liberal, at least as traditionally defined. They don't actually want to have the argument. They don't want to have the discussion. And I think that this comes from deep down knowing they don't win a lot of these arguments, that they actually don't win the, the contest of ideas, that their ideas are not as popular as they would like. And just the easiest way to win the debate is to control the terms of debate and to basically declare anything to the right of them beyond the pale and unacceptable. James Bennett is by no stretch of the imagination a Republican. In fact, he is the brother of Michael Bennett, the Colorado Democratic senator who's running for re-election right now. James Bennett is currently writing for The Economist. I actually think as, as, as far as, you know, what I would consider to be left of center columnists go, he's actually pretty good. Um, but the idea that, oh, my goodness, he's some crazed right wing person who's endangering it. Look, in the summer of 2020, everybody, the the, the height of the ups of the uh, tumultuousness and anger over the slaying of George Floyd and at the apex of the Black Lives Matter protests, which in some of which cases turned into riots. At that moment, everyone in mainstream journalism was terrified of being accused of racism and that they would do almost anything to abandon it. And so this is where I think Eric Webpel is good for going back and saying, hey, dear journalism colleagues, we had a bout of temporary, ins- I hope it was temporary, temporary insanity in which we acted like the rules of journalism had all been, been tossed out the window and suspended and that op-ed pages should not run things that are controversial. And that, in fact, the right thing to do is fire people for running them rather than to say, no, that viewpoint is wrong. Here's why. It was an abandonment of the First Amendment by the very people who keep insisting how important they keep. They say the First Amendment is important, but then they won't stand up and defend it for the rights of anybody else. So uh, I say good for you, Eric Wemple. Yeah, I do wonder if anybody's going to learn anything from this. It's kind of fitting to this pattern of long after the fact, whether it's Jason Blair or a whole bunch of other cases where Dan Rather where long after the fact, the grand poobahs of the field of the profession of journalism look at this and say, huh, go figure. It turns out the conservatives had this one right. Yes, we're right about a lot of things. <laughs> oh, man. And I hope you're right about your uh, house forecast. I encourage everyone to uh, go check out the morning jolt today as Jim looks at that. He's looked at the Senate and um, the polls, again, seem to be uh, looking pretty good for Republicans right now. Uh, I assume you saw yesterday's... Uh, supposedly accidental hot mic moment at the airport between Schumer and Biden, where he said Georgia was looking bad and Fetterman's uh, debate performance might not have cost him all that much. Uh, What do you think? Accidental or totally deliberate? Well, I would lean towards genuinely accidental, because if you were trying to 
put something out there, would you want to say, you know, like, you notice the fundraising emails are all, we have bad news. Things <laughs> yes. are looking ominous. We desperately need your, you know, when it comes to fundraising, everybody's like, oh, it's always a disaster. But then when it's an interview, when, you know, how's the campaign doing? Oh, we're doing great. Things are looking great. Turnout operations looking good. Polls are looking up. Uh, you know, we're, we're, our internal polls have us way ahead, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think what we're, I think the most obvious answer is that Schumer was saying what he's genuinely hearing. Now, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit surprised that they were feeling good about a place like Nevada. Although people who've listened to this podcast for a long time will recall, way to go, Nevada, way to go. Mm -hmm. And just recognize that there is a good Democratic turnout machine out there that can give them a little bit better than those final polls. So I would not expect anyone to say, oh, Republicans have any of these races in, in Nevada locked up. But they, I, I would not have expected Herschel Walker to be surging ahead right now. Um, and if that's the case, hey, good for him. Um, that's, you know, that's good. I, the, so all of this, I guess this is genuinely what he's hearing. It doesn't quite line up with what you would necessarily expect to be seeing. Um, but that, that, you know, certainly the, the comment about Georgia sounds like an admission against interest. And uh, I, the kind of the look on his face, if you watch the video, he kind of gives this, you know, can you believe this or, or you know, what are you going to do kind of... Uh, uh, expression on his face as he's sharing what he's uh, assessing from Georgia. So who knows? Maybe that's the case. But uh, I got to tell you, it certainly looks like a lot of these things are they're all breaking the way of Republicans. And what I saw in the House races today is kind of what I saw in the, in the governor's races a couple of days ago. There are a lot of races where there's a Democratic incumbent and the Democratic incumbent might be ahead by a couple of points, might be close. But the Republican candidate is you know, within a few points. The Democrat is below 50 and they're kind of, they're hanging around. They haven't made any mistakes in, in these, these final weeks here. So they're where you want to be. Um, I don't know if I buy into this idea that the the remaining undecided always break against the incumbent, but they you know all of these are races where the Republicans certainly have a shot with now a week and change left until election day. And you're so right about the fundraising emails. Some, I saw one the other day saying, our race is now 1%. We need your help. I'm like, okay, that's good. Tight race. Got to get everything, yeah, everything you can. Wait, that's fine. You're doing fine. What do you need my help for? <laughs> so, okay. So that's fine. We're in, a, we're in a tightening race and we need every asset we can get. But the ones that are like, well, so long, Tim Ryan. Well, <laughs> so long, Marco Rubio. You know, it, it's just like, well, thanks to the fact that you never donated, we're just going to give up. Uh, I don't know how that motivates anyone, but <laughs> I don't know. I guess it works if they keep doing it. It's even worse when they've actually gone through and gotten your name. Way to go, Jim. <laughs> you cost us the Senate. By the way, I never donate to anybody. Yeah, I don't so. know how we get on these lists. I've donated my once fault. in yeah. my life to my former college roommate who was running for county board. So the, the idea that they think I owe them anything on either side, it's crazy. I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, a lot of campaigns take their press list and put it on their fundraising list, even though that's an astonishingly terrible thing to do. <laughs> Wow. Well, Jim, by the time we talk again on Monday, the Jets may have beaten the Patriots. The Bears uh, uh, don't put any carts before any horses. <laughs> the Bears won't have lost because they have a bye this week, and they won't have won either, unfortunately. So they can't pick up on their momentum from Monday. But uh, we will reconvene then, and then be basically a week until Election Day. So have a good weekend. 
See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Please tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you also for your five-star ratings, your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Don't forget to order Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a phenomenal weekend and please join us again on halloween monday the next three martini lunch hey this is todd herman host of the todd herman show you might have heard me on rush limbaugh's show as a regular fill-in for about eight years god rest rush i now do a show out of the high mountains of free america because you know i got exiled from seattle Liz Tuss lasted about two and a half hours as Prime Minister of England. How could she last longer? Yeah, she made some mistakes, but she's also not mobbed up. The new Prime Minister of England is obsessed with something. Check out the Todd Herman Show every day on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.